All right, and welcome back to I'm Interested. I'm Mike Greenberg, and I could not be more delighted to have my guest with me this week. And I'd like to tell the story of how this particular interview was first born. So I will never forget, it's the NBA's opening night of two seasons ago. And I, like everyone else, was sitting and watching TNT. They had the opening game. And they were doing their pregame show live from the site of wherever the game was. I don't recall what city it was. And they have their crew there, Charles Barkley and Shaq and everybody else. And they bring out Adam Silver and Michelle Roberts for an interview. And I remember they were seated. The set was quite small. And they were seated so close together that I'm convinced their knees had to have been touching. And I remember the two thoughts that I had watching it. My first thought was, wow, they couldn't have gotten a bigger set. And my second thought was, boy, are those great optics for the NBA. The the notion that the person in charge of the business and the person in charge of the players, the two sides, which we are so conditioned in sports today and historically to view as being almost opponents of one another, to see the two of them sitting there as amiably as they were, I thought was fascinating. So from that moment forward, I have wanted to talk to Michelle Roberts, who is the executive director of the NBA Players Association, and this interview is taking place in her office on 6th Avenue on a swelteringly hot August day in New York City. So, Michelle, thank you very much for taking this time. No, it's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome. Thank you so much. So here's where I want to start. That relationship that I saw that day, which it is just clear to all of us who observe this for a living and probably anyone who is a fan of the league, is just a relationship that seems to be somewhat unique in sports and extraordinarily healthy and productive. So here's the first thing I'd like to ask you. Here's what I'm interested in. What is it about that relationship between the NBA players and what we would describe as NBA management that you think could be instructive for people and labor relations in any walk of life? It's too bad that people assume or describe it as rare because it shouldn't be. Um, I mean, the bottom line is this, and, and this is not necessarily transferable to every other labor management relationship, but at least within the context of basketball, um, management is not able to replace the players. They can, but they will not replace them with better players, and so they are necessarily committed to us. And, uh, at least right now, the players are not prepared to start their own league. And so my own view is I can't divorce you. Um, you and I are going to be here together. Now, we can either do it amicably or we can do it acrimoniously. And my own view is why in the world would I want to spend every day of my relationship with anybody, husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend? Why would anybody in any relationship want to have to fight all the time? And so... In, in our first meeting, um, I think Adam and I agreed that we couldn't get rid of each other. And so why don't we at least try to make sure that we fight when we have to fight and we don't when we don't. So I, I did an interview recently with an NFL insider, um, Amy Trask. And she was talking about D. Smith, whom I know you have a relationship with. I've read multiple interviews. Known him for years. Yes. And he is, for those who don't know, the executive director of the NFL Players Association. And when I asked Amy about the relationship that exists in pro football, which I feel is practically diametrically opposite to the one that we have here, I asked her to try to explain that to me as one who had been the CEO of the Oakland Raiders for years. And one of the things that she pointed out, and not accusatorily, not, not nastily, but matter-of-factly, when you hire a litigator to run your business, don't be surprised if you're going to take a confrontational approach to most things. Now, look, I'm not putting this entirely on the NFLPA, but I did notice a shift in dynamics when we lost Gene Upshaw and DeMoris took his place. Every single issue now is an argument. Michelle, you're a litigator. You're a lawyer. I'm a good one. And a good one. I'm sure you are. So why is it different? I, I don't think that it has anything to do with being a litigator. Um, 
as a litigator, I mean, one of the things that Dee would agree with me about is most cases, as much as we both love being in a courtroom, most cases don't go to trial. Every litigator understands that it's probably going to be the case that your matter is going to be negotiated, resolved, settled. And so, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm accustomed to being in courtrooms, I was in my old life, all the time, as was Dee. But 80% of my job was involving settling a dispute outside of the courtroom. So, sure, I'm ready to fight when I have to, but my, 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 my instinct is not to begin the discussion fighting. Uh, the default is if I have to fight you, I'm prepared to do it and I'll probably enjoy it. But I don't walk in there expecting that this thing is going to be resolved by way of a fight, by way of a lockout or a walkout. See, this is where I'm so interested because I'm going to go away from where I expect it to go. When you say you enjoy it, I'm so fascinated by people like you who feel that way. <laughs> I am the most non-confrontational person in the world. As, as a quick illustration, on my previous show on Mike and Mike, we had a guest named Al Leiter who came on the air. People call me Greeny. My last name is Greenberg. I know. He mistakenly called me Goldie. <laughs> Not only didn't I correct him, because it would have been so uncomfortable to correct him, right. I would sooner have gone down to the Department of Motor Vehicles and changed my last name to Goldberg before I would have been comfortable telling him, you know, it's not Goldie, it's Greeny. So can you describe to me, because I just can't, I don't understand it, the idea that I will fight you and I will enjoy it? <laughs> I... Well, well, I don't view it as a blood sport. I mean, I'm not talking about a fight to the death. I mean, at the end of the day, I know I go home, I either win, and then I have a party, or I lose, and I and I have a party still. Hmm. Um, it, it 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 it's therefore not. There's nothing wrong with with enjoying a fight. I I think it's much like enjoying a basketball game. It's competition, and so when I say I enjoy the fight, I frankly enjoy the competition. I'm not an I'm not an athlete. I don't hang out in, 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 in arenas on basketball courts, but in courtrooms, I am a gladiator. And I thoroughly enjoyed going to battle in a courtroom. Um, at the end of the day, if it's a commercial case, everybody goes home, somebody a little poorer. But at the end of the day, it's fine. If it's a criminal case, somebody may not go home, in which case it's kind of sad. But but I don't I don't view it as something that represents something negative about me or wanting to fight. That's fine. That's fine, Greeny. Just don't be a trial lawyer, and, and, and you're, you're okay. Well, I think that the reason is because I cannot separate my feelings from it. I know that in or I think part of it, as I've observed it, my father was a lawyer, mm -hmm. and so I observed it through my, I guess, my younger life. And I think that you have to have the ability to separate. I don't know if it's compartmentalizing or how you would describe it, but to separate your feelings, your emotions, from the issues you're fighting over. But if you and I are in some kind of dispute, whatever it may be, I don't know that I'd be able to find a way to not allow my feelings to become hurt when you disagree with me or to worry that I'd be hurting yours. Now, you're laughing at me. For those of you <laughs> listening on this podcast, you, I feel like you're laughing at me. What, why is that funny? Oh, first off, it's 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 it's, and it's a little different when we're talking about a criminal case, because to be honest with you, in criminal cases, I did wear my heart on my sleeve, and that, and that was tough, and that, that's part of the reason why I stopped doing it. But in commercial disputes, um, it's business. I, I frankly don't care about your feelings. I care about the strength of, the strength of your case and your leverage. And, so, and, I, and I appreciate that that's how you feel about me. It's not personal. It's 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 business. I sound like a, some mafia guy now, right? But that's that's really the way I look at it. I can disagree with Adam vehemently about an issue, and be furious that he won't bend. I'm not angry at Adam the person. I'm angry that I'm not able to exercise enough leverage to get him to change his position. But it's not personal. It's business. He's representing the owners. I'm representing the players. So I. I, I I guess I, I guess that's right. I guess I am able to divorce my feelings from that kind of dispute because it's not personal. That feels like where it has gone right in this case and in many other cases in sports gone wrong. That it does feel as though it's become personal, not exclusively in pro football today who are they're the easy example of uh, right now it, it is just very fashionable to find nasty things to say about them to the point that I'm tired of doing it and hearing people do it, but I, I feel like that is a difference. Okay, let's move to something else. The willingness on the part of the NBA to allow their players to freely express their views on practically anything, and, and in this day and age what we're talking about now, for the most part, are social issues. 
um, is also something that I feel is quite unique to the NBA right now in major sports. From where do you think that comes? The, the, the willingness on the part of the players to do it and the willingness on the part of the people who employ them to allow that to be as free as it seems to be. I think it's it's, it's an, the easier answer was with the players. I think, and I and, and I'm confident I'm right about this. When I was growing up, no one cared what I thought. Right? I mean, it's not not merely because I wasn't famous, but no one really cared. I mean, we we, we my mom cared, and maybe one or two friends cared, but there was no platform that I had where I could express an opinion, and people were interested in knowing what my opinion was. And, the this generation of players have grown up at a time where it's now fashionable to know what other people are thinking your friends even strangers but certainly it's certainly celebrities um and i'm sure you know this there are high school players that will probably end up in the nba one day that have social media followers that are in the hundreds of Mm -hmm. thousands and so now, these are young people that are accustomed to having a platform and airing their their every thought um, so for that reason, I think it's easier for them to think, okay, I'm responding to an issue I've read, seen on the news, and I'm going to I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to I'm going to post it on my social media, and there's there's nothing challenging about that because they do it all the time. The reason I suspect, and and I here I could be wrong. I'm confident I'm right about the players. Here I could be wrong. I think the difference between, say for example, the NFL and the NBA and the, and management's presumed tolerance on the NBA side um, to allow players to express the concerns on social media. Um, I think it has a lot to do with the nature of the owners and the nature of our fan base. I know our fan base is younger, um, but I believe that our ownership. Um, is also different in that probably younger, um, much more entrepreneurial, um, and frankly, I think probably more progressive politically. And so I have I don't recall that any single NBA owner has at least out loud uh, said half the things that I've seen or heard NFL owners say about uh, players' right to to speak publicly about political matters. I, I don't I don't recall one. In fact, quite the contrary. So I, I think even if our owners might disagree with the players, they're not a generation that thinks that they can shut the players up or stifle their speech because they're of the view, I think, and I've, I've met just about all the, all the NBA owners, that they have a regard for the players and, and, and their right to speak that is very different from what some of the NFL owners, owners believe. Um, and our fan base has not punished a single one of our players for any political statements that they've made. Now, I say that knowing that, what, 12 years ago, there was a player that did get find himself in, in, in the short hairs because of his comments or, or refusal to, to, I think, salute the flag or something. I, can't, I, I don't recall exactly what, what. But certainly since I've been here, um, my experience with the owners is not only do they not at least openly complain, but they, to some extent, don't even think it's appropriate to complain about it. Um, I, I don't know why the NFL hasn't been able to get there. Um, I don't know any of their owners. Um, I only know a handful of players. I also don't have a president that has decided to put my game in the crosshair. So I, I don't, I don't, for nothing, appreciate that that brings some additional pressures. But we're just a different, we're just a different game, a different ownership group, and, and, and in many ways, a different fan base. I appreciate all of that. But then let me ask you the other side, because we've seen the enormous price that is being paid in pro football. You just alluded to it mm-hmm. on any number of sides. What, if any, price is being paid by NBA players or by the league for any sort of outspokenness? I, I read a story that there are fans who were frustrated, for example, with Greg Popovich, who has been very outspoken. And, and I don't I don't get into any political conversation mm-hmm. on sure. this podcast because I just don't think anyone in our audience is interested in hearing that. But we all know what Greg Popovich has said. He has been extraordinarily outspoken in criticism of the president. Mm-hmm. And I have read interviews uh, with some fans who have stopped going to Spurs games, have, have become turned off by the league. So there has to be some 
level of price that has been paid. But I, I, I can see from the look on your face, you think it's been minimal at most. Uh, you took the words out of my mouth. It's hardly measurable. Our game is our game's popularity has grown. Um, our gate receipts are up. You know, Pop remains one of the most most popular coaches in the in the league. Um, I, I, look, I'm not suggesting that there aren't fans that have been turned off by the whole thing. But not in not in any measurable way, and certainly not anything like what's going on in the NFL. Let's talk about social media. You alluded to it. The, the NBA players, more than any other sports stars in our culture, are mm-hmm. celebrities. I I, I are. think the fiftieth most famous player in the NBA would be the most famous baseball player <laughs> in America. Um, what what conversations do you have with them about social media and about the? potential pitfalls or whatever whatever may go with that you'd be surprised how how few conversations we have now i you know we do with our with our rookies because even as 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 as, as popular as many of them have been in the college at the college level even at the AAU level it's different when they get to the nba and we want them to know you know you've got 200,000 followers now you are likely going to double that within the first 4 months of the season more people are going to be watching you more people are going to be listening to you and frankly you have a lot more at stake now um and so we have those conversations with the rookies just to remind them that people are are watching i use the grandmother rule or the mom rule would you be embarrassed to have your mom see this post then don't don't post it um what may be surprising to you is uh, beyond that at least the, the NBPA does not direct the players, suggest to the players, condone the players, chastise the players about anything that they want to put, put on post on social media. My view is you have the right to say absolutely nothing on any political on any political issue. If you want to be agnostic, that's fine. But you, I, but you, I also don't suggest to them that they have the, they have to shut up. And so there's, I, I might like a post. Um, but that's probably the only time I comment on something that any of our players have posted, unless someone like like you asks me. Mm-hmm. But I have never called a player and said, you, know, you should think twice about that post that you sent. I can't even imagine that I would, frankly, because it's his right to do that. Our, these, these guys are pretty smart. They appreciate the importance of their brand and protecting their brand. Um, and, you know, we've had some exceptions, but frankly, I think most of the players are quite conscious of the possible negative or negative ramifications of a bad post or a post that's going to result in a, a huge backlash. How about regular media, the big bad media, people like me? So I remember when I first got into this business, Ray Meyer was the coach of DePaul. I, I started out working locally in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Ray Meyer was the legendary basketball coach at DePaul. Yep. And when I would cover DePaul basketball games, he was by that time doing uh, radio commentary on the games. His son Joey was actually coaching the team. And he would sit in the dining area before games, and he would just regale people with unbelievable stories. I mean, George Mikan stories and things like that. But one of the things that I will never forget he told me was that when he first started coaching in the 50s, his first responsibility when a game ended, win, lose, or draw, was to call the sports desk at the Chicago Tribune and dictate verbally the box score. So that the box score of his team's game would get into the newspaper the following morning because it was free publicity for the basketball team. Fast forward, smash cut mm-hmm. to 2018. We now live in a time where the, the role of the media relations department, the press relations department of a, of a basketball team, is not to try to get attention for the players, but to protect them, right? To shield them yeah. from that. So I'm, I'm curious, the same question. What conversations do you have and do you hear amongst players about media and about the way that the league is covered? You, you know, um, the, the players, first off, get that they have to talk to the media. And I, now, I will allow that not all of them are happy about that, but they do get that, that that's something that's non-negotiable. You have to talk to them. They're going to be in the locker rooms. Um, sadly, there are players that do believe that, that, that media types, journalists, are playing the gotcha game, and they... Their reticence to the extent that it exists is because they're afraid they're going to be lured into saying something wrong, something embarrassing, something that they're going to regret. And so there is a, a, an element of fear. Most of what I talk to the guys about is taking a breath. If you lost anything, when I, when I would lose very rarely, of course, a trial, <laughs> and the last thing I wanted to do was to have to talk to anybody about it. I can't imagine somebody putting a microphone in my mouth after a huge verdict against me and say, well, Michelle, how do you feel? 
Um, what do you think you did wrong? I mean, I just can't can't imagine that. I, I would sometimes need a couple of days off in order to recover from a bad result. Um, and so what I've... Ex- I've said to players is, especially after a loss, and our, you know our guys are incredibly competitive. And if it happens to be a playoff game, oh my God, being in that locker room after a loss is no fun at all. It's just to take take the couple of minutes to decompress. Um, don't get pissed off at the guy that's asking you the questions. That's his job. Um, that's what he does for a living. That's what she does for a living. Um, no one's out to get you. No one can get you if you don't say anything stupid or ridiculously insulting. Um, so just 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 take a breath and think about it. But I will tell you, most of the players kind of get that there is there is value in talking to the media. Um, there there is value in and because again they're they're in the business of trying to develop their brand. There is value in saying something interesting, saying something quotable, uh, not insulting, um, and actually don't have a problem with that. So. What I've encouraged me- the media to do and I've encouraged players to do is to try to find opportunities for longer forms. Um, the question and in the locker room after a game is sometimes not really an interesting question and sometimes the response is equally uninteresting. But to instead use the media to tell their story, and you can do that in a better, you can do that more effectively if you do it in a long form. So, It's I, fascinating because I think that that value that you're talking about, the value of of developing a however you phrase it developing a relationship with the media as we currently know it has been steadily diminishing Mm -hmm. and with the not only with the direct connection and communication that your players and that anyone can have now with their following on social media but with things like lebron creating his own media channel Derek jeter created the players tribune Mm -hmm. very slowly but surely i think we are seeing such a diminution in the the importance of the media that I wonder where it goes. I, 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 I will be done with this, I think, by the time it reaches this point. But I wonder if we see a time where it is its significance is really marginalized. I hope not. I mean, I, I really hope not. Um, I think it has. You're right. It's taken a hit in terms of its prominence because now you know, players, other people have the ability to, to control the, the, the narrative themselves. Um, but there's some value, in my view, in having a third party be able to filter um, and 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 be more critical of of, of new so-called newsmakers than having the newsmakers themselves create the product. Um, having said that, I also I admire Players Tribune. I love the notion of players telling their own story in their own words. But but I don't want you guys to go away. Not all of you, um, because I do think that there is. There is something to be said about having a dispassionate media challenge, confront, ask questions, as opposed to a fawning employee do it instead. I like that thought. I'm going to remember that. I'm going to, I'm going to use that the next time someone asks me if I think my job is going to become obsolete. <laughs> we will continue with more of my conversation with Michelle Roberts in just a moment. But first, I want to take a moment to tell you about LinkedIn. The right hire can make a huge impact on your business, and that's why it is so important to find the right person. But where do you find that individual? You could try posting on job boards, but can you really be sure the right person will see your job? Instead, find the person who will help you grow your business with LinkedIn. As the world's largest professional network, people go to LinkedIn every day to grow professionally and discover job opportunities. And 70% of the U.S. workforce is already there. LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on more of who they really are, their skills, their interests, and even how open they are to new opportunities. This way, your job gets seen by more of the right people. Most LinkedIn members haven't recently visited the top job boards, but 9 out of 10 members are open to new opportunities. So really, the only way you can reach them is on LinkedIn. That's why a new hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. And businesses rate LinkedIn 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. So do this now. Hurry to LinkedIn.com slash Greeny. You get $50 off your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com slash Greeny. Get $50 off your first job post. LinkedIn.com slash Greeny. Terms and conditions apply. I want to talk about LeBron James. Um, I started out in this industry covering sports in the early 90s in Chicago and I covered Michael Jordan and I was around him home and road most days for the better part of seven years Mm -hmm. and he was um, people ask me all the time about him and and I always say for a person who was as as famous as he was and I think when I covered him he was the most famous person in the world he candidly may still be Um, but he certainly was then 
I said, I always said his feet were about as close to being on the ground as you could ever possibly imagine a person of his position being. But he lived in a totally different world than the world that LeBron James lives in now. And so what I want to ask you is how would you try to explain or try to describe to someone who didn't understand it the significance of LeBron James in the culture today, not not just in basketball, but beyond that? Because it seems to me with what you see that he's forgetting the fact that he is in the handful of greatest basketball players that ever lived. But what he has done in business, what he has done with with building a production company that at this point looks as though it may become a significant player in an entirely other industry, what he has done with the school in in his hometown, it just feels like there's everybody else and then there's him. How how do you describe it? You just did. (laughs) There is everybody else and then there's there's him. And, And remember, this guy didn't go to college. Right. I mean, I, I, I spend a lot of time trying to understand LeBron so I can figure out a way to replicate him um, because he is he is impossible to imagine. I, I, I was not a LeBron fan as a fan for a long time because I didn't see him play um, up close and personal. I, I'm a, as I'm told you are, I'm a diehard Knicks fan, and I've, mm-hmm. I've been waiting for the Knicks to come back for 35 years. Mm-hmm. And so I've always been super critical of anyone who did not play for the Knicks. And then I became a Wizards fan. And so I, you know, I, I didn't bask in the genius of LeBron until probably after he left Cleveland. And then I couldn't stop staring at him. Um, I, 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 I don't know how someone who comes from um, a, a, a one-parent family who had no sort of nuclear family to help support him, who, who, for all intents and purposes, could have been either incarcerated by now or dead. I don't know how someone with so little to begin with, other than his basketball skills, and that's why we can't pretend that they're not there, could have done what he's done. Um, he genuinely loves basketball because basketball, I believe, gave him an opportunity to become someone that no one would have bet he would ever become. Um, I don't know why he has never, in all the years he's been playing playing professionally, has never gotten in trouble, right? I don't know how he's managed to have a phenomenally fantastic family, wife, children. Um, I don't know how, even at his age, he's able to, in my estimation, continue to reign as the best basketball player that we have on the court. And I say that knowing that i got 449 guys that are mad at me right now. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I cannot explain LeBron James. All I can do is thank God that I've been able to watch him play um, at this, and been able to live when, at a time when I both watched him play and Michael Jordan. Um, so if you figure it out, you let me know. I can't explain it. It's so much more than the basketball piece of it, though, to me, because Michael Jordan, having been around him, and I, 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 I do not say this, um, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm saying it in a, in a negative way, but he didn't really care about anything besides being the greatest basketball player in the world. He was singularly focused and driven on that. LeBron James seems to be about so much more. And part of that, I think, is that he is a product of the era in which he lives. It's just a different time in a different world. But there's, there are just, there's a difference in the scope of their, of their significance. Am I making sense? Yeah, you are. And I, th- I think th- this is how I view it, I suppose, on some level. I don't know how powerful Michael believed himself to be when he was playing. I mean, those of us who watched him play, we absolutely knew he was the best basketball player in the world. We knew he was probably the most popular person on the planet. I don't know if he understood the the power that came with that that level of recognition and, and admiration. LeBron does. Um, and I, maybe it's because this, again, is a generation of, of people who have had attention in ways and, and a, an ability to communicate to vast numbers of people in ways that someone like Michael Jordan didn't because in that era he couldn't. But LeBron, I think on a fundamental level, knows what his power is. Um, he knows that he can take on a president. And despite the fact that the president will slap back, he's going to be fine. I don't know that Michael Jordan, and I don't know either one of them well enough to be surmising all the things I'm surmising, but I don't know that Michael Jordan believed that if he did decide to stake out a political position that it would not damage his brand. LeBron knows that it's not, or or apparently doesn't believe it matters. Um, And so I do think it's a question of how much power each of these men in their in their respective generations believed that they could exert and what each of them believed would be the ramifications of, 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 of 
exerting some some power. I think that's exactly right. I, I, I think you have it exactly right, and and that's the beauty of being able to ask these questions because that's something I've been thinking about for a really long time, and I never put it in that context. I, I think you have it exactly right. Okay, with regards to your job, your professional life, what keeps you awake at night? Oh, it depends upon the day of the week. <laughs> uh, well, let me tell you what I do. The first thing I, I when I get up in the morning, I, I have my, my cell phone nearby, and I immediately look for alerts. And I hope and pray that none of my players has gotten hurt, none of my players has gotten, God forbid, killed, and none of my players has gotten arrested. I mean, I, in other words, I, I, I worry that that because they are so recognizable, even the guy that ended the bench, you know, he's that this tall. So walking through an airport, they someone knows who he is, or they're at a restaurant, or at a, or at a club, or at a bar, and someone assumes, oh, that's an NBA player, and and you know, the next thing that happens is trouble. So what keeps me up at night, well, gets me up in the morning is making sure that my my players are okay. Um, apart from that, and and then and, and I should include an injury. Apart from that, um, what I hope for the PA and what the PA has asked me to help it do for itself is to create an ability for it to survive notwithstanding what may change in the future. In other words, okay, you, you've commented that, that Silver and I get along well. We do. Um, I don't plan to be here in this job the rest of my life, and I suspect Adam, too, would like to have some some, some day after. I don't know if my successor or his successor is going to have a different view or the ownership will change. Um, I want this PA to be able to survive um, a, a management that takes a different view of itself. And so, what it doesn't keep me up so much at night, but gets me up in the morning um, and, and to the and to work is to help find ways to strengthen this union, to strengthen this PA, so that it never finds itself having to, having to decide to, but having to acquiesce um, because of its complete dependence upon the owners. Um, so that's what that's what keeps me in the job. Frankly, nothing keeps me up at night. I work so I work so late that when I go home, I, I can sleep pretty well. And so then I would ask what what you hear from your players. What concerns do you hear regularly from NBA players? Again, it depends upon the day. You know, for a while I was hearing a lot about officiating, um, a ton about that, but that's gone. We're at a place now with the players that most of what we're talking about are concerns about about their health. And I, I have to frankly include mental health in that as well. Uh, the players are smarter. I don't mean to be condescending to, the, to those that came before them, but they're, they're much more conscious of the need to protect their bodies in order to keep playing. And so I, I sometimes get complaints or concerns about different treatment modules that are being employed, about supplements that, that they're being asked to take, about supplements that they'd like to take. Um, and, and then concerns about whether or not they are being asked to play when they should be allowed to rest. And so there's more concern about health than there were, I suspect, among this category of players than there were in, in, in previous years. But overall, and I'm knocking on wood, um, I don't have a lot of fire alarms being being pulled. Let's talk about the issue of resting, because that is something that has gotten a good deal of attention. I know the NBA did a I think a pretty good job of trying to address some of the issues, fewer back-to-backs, fewer right. three games in four days, all of that. But you will hear players who came a generation or two before suggest that the players of this era, I'm going to use a word, I don't know that they all say, but we'll, we'll describe soft. them as being somewhat soft, comparatively right. speaking. And I, I have had players of who played in the 70s and the 80s say to me, in my day, we'd play a game at night. We'd all show up at the airport the next morning. We'd be at the Cinnabon getting breakfast. <laughs> we'd be on the same flight that any other person would be. We'd get to the next city. We'd play that night, right. and no one ever missed a game. Right. So, uh, and, and candidly, I, I, I am a, a, a child of that era. I grew mm-hmm. up watching that league and that sport. Same here. And so how can you describe to those players, or to me, a way that will make them understand the difference in the mentality today and why it makes sense the way the players of today view it relative to the way they viewed it then. I'm sitting here trying to recall how many surgeries um, Earl Monroe told me he had. 
um, dozens since his playing days, and 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 I've, I'm sure you've seen this as well. I I'm always almost drawn to tears when I see some of these guys barely able to walk. Um, operations upon operations because of bad knees, um, hip replacements. Um, that, I think, is a consequence of uh, forcing players to play back-to-backs and, and do commercial flights and, and, and poor diets. Um, I, I don't take away from those guys. I mean, that we, we, we all of us, athletes or otherwise, n- now take nutrition very seriously in ways that we didn't 10, 20, certainly 30, 40 years ago. And so, you know, I'd I, I cringe when I hear that these guys refer to current players as soft. I'd prefer that they would refer to them as more enlightened. Um, I, I suspect that had 30, 40 years ago, folks knew what we now know about the importance of rest, about the importance of nutrition and good food, that those players would have, would have understood and acquiesced. Uh, look, I, I complain about young people all the time, too, right? That's what old people do. We, we talk about it in my day, how now that life was so much better. Um, but I don't apologize for the the insistence that we now make that players do get as much rest as they can, that they are provided appropriate diets. It, I, I think someone told me the other day that 27 of our teams have chefs uh, preparing, not, not French fries, but preparing good healthy food for players because everyone now understands it's not only just the players that want to be able to maintain some some modicum of of, of physical well-being it makes sense for the game i mean how many times have you been disappointed that a player that you wanted to see play can't play because he's out with an injury well i think we're getting smarter now and that that is is good for the player it's good for the game one thing that i've been asking all of my guests on this podcast because it's just something that interests me as a all I really am at the end of the day is an observer of the culture that we live in. I'm, I'm an observer of our society. I've been hosting talk shows for 30 years. So I sit and I just talk about the things that I observe. And I'm also a parent of two kids who are now teenagers who are going to go into uh, – who I believe are going to live at least at, in the immediate future in a very different world than the one that I lived in when I was their age. Yep. And the way I describe it is the coarsening of the culture. I feel like we live in a time – of great coarseness. There's just a an undercurrent, it feels like, of nastiness. I'm not exclusively talking about politics. I'm, I just mean across the board. I just feel like people are nastier to each other. There is more resentment. There's just more meanness in the world. And I sit and wonder what we can do about it and, and what is going to reverse what seems to be a course and a move in that direction. And I'm trying to find really smart people who can help me figure out the answer to that, because I can't. Can you help me? I will I will try, but I, I, again, if I knew the answer, I'd be, I'd be rich. I was, um, I was, this may or may not answer your question, but it's been something that I've been noticing a lot, uh, a lot more lately. I went to the gym in my building yesterday to work out, right? And there's a husband and wife that work out and I, and I met them through the gym, and they were both there. Uh, they'd, they'd finished their workouts, but they were both on their phones. And it it it, it just struck me that that every it, it's it's almost unusual if I walk into a restaurant, I see people at a table who are not on their respective phones. And we don't talk to each other anymore. I mean, I, I look, I'm on my phone all the time. I'm, I'm reading. I think I'm so very important that I have to get, check my emails every 15 seconds. So I'm not pretending that I don't do it myself. Um, but it does occur to me that I that one can spend a day not having any human contact, but believe that that that, that the day's been productive because you've been able to communicate by email, by text, by phone. Um, we don't talk to each other, and so if you don't have to interact with people, then you, you suddenly don't know what it means to, to, to treat another person like another person as opposed to a text message. Um, if uh, This will sound incredibly corny and hokey, but if we just talk to each other, um, then we'll know how to talk to each other. We don't know how to talk to each other anymore, and so we, what we do is we get mad because you happen to be Hispanic and I want my, my coffee and you're taking too long to get it to me. Um, as opposed to knowing, having, being accustomed to going into a coffee shop and saying, you know, hey, Jose, what's up? How's your family? We don't do that anymore. We, we don't talk to each other. And so, again, we just don't know how to. You can start by if your kids come home and you're at dinner and they 
pull out their phones, tell them to put them, put them down? Yeah, I mean, the, the answer that I get from kids of that generation is that they know how to deal with that stuff better than we do. So, so I, I heard a lecture from a professor of education from Harvard, brilliant guy, who wrote a book called The Education Gap. And the basic idea of the book is that we are teaching young people today, 21st century people, with using 20th century methodology. And, but the way he described people is that you and I, we are technology immigrants. We weren't raised here. <laughs> the, the people I'm talking about, my, my children's generation, are technology natives. Right. They, they've always had this all their lives. And so they would say, you know, Dad, when people my age hear people your age tell me that I'm on my phone all the time, we think you sound ridiculous. Not, mm-hmm. not, that, not that we don't get it, that mm-hmm. you don't get it. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're right. That, see, that's my hope, is that, is that the silver lining out there is that our generation that doesn't know how to handle all of this technology because we were not raised with it and we have sort of been figuring it out as we go along are the ones who have screwed everything up. And that the younger people who have, to whom this is just their normal that they actually will get it right, that they, they will actually figure it out better than we have. Does, does that seem to make any sense no, to you? Oh, they, I think they will in, in many ways. Um, I don't know that they will necessarily in the area of communication. I mean, you know, a conversation is more than 280 characters, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, a letter is not – I mean, I remember seven, eight-page letters that, that, that I would read over and over again because they would make me – that would be away from home and it would be nice to hear from my brother when he was in the Air Force – as opposed to uh, a tweet, and so so I, look. I hope I'm not that kind of dinosaur that thinks that all that the millennials should all be drowned. I don't. I don't believe that. I've heard it said, but I do think that there's some things that they do wrong. And one of the things I think that they do tremendously wrong is believe that there's that there is not value in just looking a person in the eye and, and having a conversation as opposed to just just sending fifteen or twenty text messages. I I, I think that's where they. Then they're not getting it right. Though, look, you could be right. They may they may make fools of us all one day. I hope so. Sometimes I look at <laughs> what so. I'm seeing young people do. Well, I, I do. Sometimes I see what young people are doing, mobilizing in various ways, and and being much more involved. And again, without I don't want to get into any politics here, but being mm-hmm. more involved politically, much more conscious of the things going on in the world that they live in than I ever was when I was their age. Much more concerned about things beyond themselves than I was at their age. Like, I've seen things that suggest that the the generation of which I think my kids would be a part um, are a generation that actually takes into account, before they make a a purchasing decision, for example, they take into account the the business that they are going to give their business to, how, how they treat people. Whether they are environmentally conscious, whether they, you know what I'm saying? They, they take into account something beyond the price when they make a decision between multiple options. I never thought about that stuff. I, I don't know that I would have known to do so even if I'd wanted to. But I think that there is, there is some reason for hope with that. I think young people are a little more, and this may be because of technology, but a little more attuned to the fact that they live in a much larger world than themselves which is ironic because I think we sometimes think they're so incredibly self-concerned, but maybe they, they recognize that they live in a bigger place more so than we did. And that could be. You know, bear in mind, Greeny, I, I grew up in a place that, that, that was different. I mean, I, I grew up in the South Bronx, and, and my world was the South Bronx. And the people I grew up with, their world was, was the South Bronx. Um, and so... Perhaps I just have different expectations of of, of young people, and, and I don't have any kids, so that, so you you have me at a disadvantage because I don't I don't I don't speak to to young people except my players, and, and not a, not on an everyday basis. I frankly have grown up with with people that looked like me that were necessarily conscious of a lot of the things that you're describing the co- that young people are now only today conscious of. Mm. You know, I had to be sort of mindful of where I spent my money because I didn't have much of it. And I needed to, and I, because I grew up in the 60s, I was aware of some of the corporate philosophies of some of the vendors I had to interact with. So I've sort of, I don't, I view that not as something that's new and different. Perhaps it's it's more popular now. But I grew up at a time when we were we were painfully aware of some of the decisions we had to make about 
where we could go, where we could spend our money, where we should go, where we should spend our money. And so I, I suppose if, if you're telling me that you see more of that in, among a larger group of young people, that's fine. I'd like to think there was always some critical mass of young people, certainly in my generation, that were thinking in that way. And I, I guess I'll agree with you to the extent that that's something that's more pronounced today than it had been. There was a period of time, probably in the 90s, when we were fairly agnostic. And so I, I'd like to think that it's more of a return to activism than the emergence of activism. That's fair. I think that's actually right. I think I... Because I'm a little younger than you, I think I fall right in that period (laughs) where we stopped caring. You you people stopped caring. It's exactly right. (laughs) You know what? I say this all the time. I think my generation really is the one that screwed everything up. I really do. We came through the, 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 the baby boomer generation and then into the 60s where people were very political and very concerned with things. You're exactly right about things larger than themselves. And I am a member of a generation, I was born in 1967, so I was raised really in the late 70s and the 80s, where everyone was really just, what's in it for me? I mean, I I think I I am a member of the what's in it for me generation. (laughs) So maybe it is actually, it is... It is, it is pinpointed. Maybe it really is that specific. And, and so if I will concede that point, that you're right, that, that, that this is not something new. It is a return to something that probably never should have gone away in the first yeah. place. I mean, I, I recall both in college and law school being engaged in demonstrations. I mean, we did that. It, it, it was – it did stop. But I recall – I call like the first week of law school. We were, we were demonstrating against the Baki decision. The Supreme Court was about to do do a uh, come back with a decision on affirmative action. And the South African embassy before Mandela had been released. When I was a lawyer, we were still doing that. But you're right. There became there did come a period of of quiet. Um, and I do view what's been going on in the last. It's more pronounced in the last two or three years, but certainly in the last seven or eight years, with Obama. Um, most especially as a as a return to activism, I'm not I'm not at all poo pooing what, what kids are doing now. Uh, I do applaud what they're doing now, uh, but they they didn't invent this. All right, a final question, and we'll go back to the business. <laughs> what do you view as the next frontier for the NBA? They're, they're right now. It feels like the league is on just a remarkable trajectory, a remarkable ascendancy. These things, in my experience, have tended to be cyclical. One would have said exactly that about the National Football League very recently, and now it is very fashionable to say the opposite, that those things kind of swing back and forth. What do you view as the next frontier for the NBA? I'm not going to say gambling. I'm I'm not going to say gambling, because I don't. I think it's something we have to contend with, but I don't view gambling as, as... at least as as a positive, um, I, I think it's something that 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 we will address in in, in short order. Um, I actually, and I've just been maybe it's because I've been spending more time thinking about this lately. Um, Sternga had it right, or whoever over there uh, was thinking about and 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 encouraging the growth of the game internationally. Um, I'd like to to see us be much more aggressive in in getting the game. Uh, not out of the U- the U.S., but expanding the game there. I know that Adam is excited about that as well. You know, with television changing, I mean, I don't, let, and I don't mean to say you're going to be out of a job, but but let's face it, the way that our games are being broadcast are going to change. Uh, people are using those phones to watch games. And how the, the way that the product is being ingested is going to change. Um, but And all of that allows for a greater expansion internationally. If you haven't had a chance to watch a game being played outside the United States, I encourage you to do that. It is remarkable to me to see to see. I was in South Africa a couple of weeks ago, not the first time because this is what the third the third game I think. But it is it is fascinating to me to watch people who have never set foot on a U.S. basketball court, um, who have never probably had a conversation with a U.S. basketball player, um, or for that matter, an African basketball player be so enamored with with a U.S. sport and the way that, that, that I observe the, the, the folks at the arena in South Africa. Um, it's, it's the same thing whenever you see the game being played outside of the U.S. the U.S. territories. And so I want to see more and more of that. Um, I don't know that we'll ever dominate soccer, but we can. 
uh, football doesn't have the same possibilities that basketball does in that space. And so I'll be dead by then, but I suspect that in 30 years um, there'll be as much basketball being played outside the U.S. that there's being played in the U.S. Um, I think that's exciting. And I would be remiss, just to, to finish here, if I didn't follow up on what you said about gambling. That, that, <laughs> that obviously is a big deal right now. I wasn't yeah, even is. going to bring it up, but you you clearly did, and you, you I could tell from your tone that you have an issue here. What what is your <laughs> what is your issue with gambling? You know, I, I'm not I'm not a prude about gambling. I, I don't gamble, but that's that's not because I think there's anything wrong with it. I just don't feel like risking my money, but little I have. Um, I, but I, you know, I've got some concerns about it because I do think that you know we're naive if we don't think it's going to change the game um, in this way. Not not the conduct of the players, and I'm not suggesting that at all. Um, but there, uh, if you've gone to Europe, for example, and and, and watched a, 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 a sports broadcast. It, it amazes me uh, the gambling commercials that, 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 that everyone's talking about the odds, and it, it it does lead to greater suspicion about about game outcomes. I worry about the impact that's going to have on on our game, especially since I don't know that the revenue that's going to be generated is necessarily going to be enjoyed by the people that create the game. So, while there are some people, and I'm among them on, on, on some days, that laud the existence of legalized gambling because it's simply a recognition that that money is being bet, and therefore, let's take it out of the take it out of the shadows. I get that. Um, but I, I do quietly worry about some of the unintended negative consequences that are going to happen. And, 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 and recall this. Um, we had a couple of injuries in the last series, uh, last uh, playoffs, that were real. I mean, they were just real. Because these, these were men that would have given their lives to be able to play. Um, but they were really hurt, and they couldn't play. And some of them played despite the fact that they had real injuries. Um, we, gambling was not an issue, and therefore it didn't. Was a, we, all we did was lament that the player was not able to play. Now put the the the, the screen of gambling on that, and and you can you you can write the stories. You'll know what the suspicions are. You'll the the, the accusations will be. Um, I frankly worry about that and, and, and look forward to spending time with the league to figure out how we can protect the integrity of our game uh, without destroying the, the, the fans' ability to appreciate and enjoy the game. Uh, but it, the landscape is going to change, and, and, and I worry about it. Well, we will pick up our next conversation, I hope, there, because that is a fascinating topic and one that will continue to develop. I, I can't tell you how much I have enjoyed this and how much I appreciate it, and I hope that everyone listening has found it as interesting as I have. My entire goal with this podcast has been to find interesting people and talk to them about the things that, that make them interesting to me, and this has been just fabulous. Your office, by the way, might be the most awesome place I've ever seen <laughs> in my entire life. This is about the coolest office I've ever been in, but Michelle, thank you endlessly uh, on behalf of anyone listening for taking all of this time with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, no worries. Thank you. All right. My thanks again to Michelle Roberts for an enlightening conversation. And so that is week two of I'm Interested. And I loved both interviews with Amy and with Michelle Roberts. And uh, next week we will have a complete departure. We've had a lot of issues so far in the first two uh, editions of this podcast. Next week, Paul Feinbaum will be my guest. We will talk about his meteoric rise from a guy who is hosting a small local radio show to a guy who's now one of the most significant voices in college football and, and the way that his rise has really mirrored or maybe been a significant factor in the enormous rise in the Southeastern Conference, particularly in football. So I look forward to that very much. I hope you will spend some time with us next week. In the meantime, if I could ask you to, if you have a moment to please subscribe and rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. I'm Mike Greenberg. Have a wonderful week, and I'll see you soon. 